0: Welcome to the eCommerce podcast with Matt Edmondson, a show that brings you regular interviews, tips and tools for building your business online.
1: Hi, and welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, your host, Matt Edmondson. All of this week's notes and links can be found on our website for free at ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 91. And this week, we are talking about how you can stop guessing about your website and the changes that you make and what's going to affect the bottom line. We're going to get into the nitty gritty of how to do it the right way. So don't go anywhere.
0: Hey there, are you a business owner? Here at Orion Digital, we know firsthand that running an e-commerce business can be really hard work. As the online space gets more competitive, it is becoming even more challenging to stay ahead of the curve. We totally get it. So we want to help you succeed by offering a wide range of services, from fulfillment, marketing, customer service, and even coaching and consulting, just so that you can do what matters most. Save yourself the time and the money and let us handle the day-to-day tasks. This way, you can run your business without having to worry about the boring stuff. So what do you say? Are we a good fit for each other? Come check us out at oriondigital.com and let us know what
1: you think. Thanks for joining us on the e-commerce podcast. It is great that you are here. Now, whether you are just starting out, you may be even just thinking about getting involved in e-commerce, or you may have been around a few years, a bit like my good self. Wherever you are on your e-commerce journey, uh, you are in the right place. This is a show for you that's gonna help you grow your e-commerce and digital business. And to do that every week, we bring you great show sponsors who are gonna help you as well amazing guests, experts in their own field with stories and insights that can help us start, adapt, and grow online. And this week's phenomenal guest is the legendary AJ Davis. Uh, She is a conversion rate optimization specialist, or CRO. Uh, for those in the know, she is the founder of Experiment Zone. Now, Experiment Zone, if you haven't heard of it, helps your online businesses grow uh, by improving your user experience on your website. Now, prior to starting Experiment Zone in 2017, AJ led optimization strategy for Fortune 500 companies during her tenure at Clearhead. She was also the lead UX researcher on the Google Optimize product. So, yep, she knows her stuff. She is the right person to talk to, let me tell you. An absolute wonderful lady. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, this interview uh, with AJ. So, without further ado, here we go. So, AJ, welcome to the e-commerce podcast. Great to be with you all the way from sunny Austin, Texas, uh, where we were talking before you came, uh, before we started the recording, that you were playing pickleball. Uh, which was a completely new phrase to me.
2: You should absolutely check it out. If <laughs> listeners or if you haven't played it, you've got to do pickleball. It is, I it's not what I do professionally by any means, but it is so much fun. It's a great way to spend your time.
1: <laughs> yeah, apparently it doesn't take much to become world champion at pickleball we were discussing.
2: I'm sure that the pros would agree with us.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Well, listen, it's great to have you here. Uh, all the way, like I say, from sunny Austin, Texas. Uh, beaming in. Now, uh, we are going to be talking about conversion rate optimization. Uh, and I remember our pre call where we talked about this. Um, and she came up with this phrase: we're going to talk about how to do conversion rate optimization well, unlike everybody else. And so I <laughs> thought, ooh, big claim. Let's get into this one. Um, so b- before we jump off that cliff, uh, why don't you give us a quick intro to all things AJ?
2: All right. Well, I'm a conversion rate optimization specialist, and I just have a very big passion for figuring out how to communicate with users and to measure all the things that they do so we can get them to become customers. So what I, my mission in life is to get visitors to become customers on your website.
1: Your mission in life is to get visitors to become customers on your website. I like that. That's a good mission to have. Um, But what kind of, I guess, a little bit of the backstory, how did you get into CRO or conversion rate optimization? Mm -hmm. Um, How did you get into that?
2: I was a user experience researcher at Google for a product called Google Optimize. Um, And I had an opportunity to be the researcher from you know, pen and paper, whiteboarding exercises of what the product could look like and who it was solving problems for up into launch. And so as a result, I got to interview and show prototypes to uh, a bunch of people already doing conversion rate optimization. And as a researcher, I'm supposed to remove my emotion. I'm supposed to sort of be at this blank slate collecting information. And I'd walk away from the sessions and go, oh, that is, sounds like so much fun. And the reason it's fun for me is because you take the information and the problems that you learn about with research, Mm -hmm. and then you get to apply it in a real world experiment to make sure it worked the way you expected. So it's fun because we get to make changes fast. We get to have big impacts on businesses. And at the end of the day, we're also making life a little bit easier for people.
1: Wow. So it started with, it started with a dream at Google, uh, and you decided, you know, one day I'm just going to do this for myself. I'm going to take the plunge and, and, uh, and set, and set up an agency doing CRO. Is that is that how it happened? Just one day you woke up with an epiphany.
2: It was a bit of an epiphany. Yes, I have, I actually went to work for an agency here in Austin mm. for a year before starting Experiment Zone. So I got a chance to really test it out, make sure it's truly what I wanted to do, and then started Experiment Zone and have been doing it ever since. Oh wow, wow. Well,
1: it's great that you're here, and um, obviously very good credentials, uh, one might add. So let's, let's start off the conversation about conversion rate optimization and um, define what it is, because I, I find, um, like with all three-letter acronyms used in e-commerce, CRO being one of them, um, there is such a wide breadth of understanding in, in, by what people mean by this term. So what do you mean when you talk about conversion rate optimization?
2: I think the first thing that a lot of people think of with CRO is A-B testing, and that is a big part of it. So it's being able to take an experience of a website and make a second version of that same experience, and then see how people respond to each to see the differences between them. Um, I think it's a much bigger experience than that. I think it goes beyond A-B testing. A-B testing is a really powerful tool, something we use all the time. But in junction to that, you really have to build up an understanding of what is it that these prospects or these visitors on your site, what do they respond to, what questions or concerns do they have, and then where are those little bumps along their path to becoming a customer that you can smooth out. And so you can measure it with an A-B test. You can know the impact to revenue with an A-B test. But deciding what it is you should test in an A-B test is really uh, quite an art. And you have to do a lot of research and analytics work before you decide what to test.
1: That's a really interesting point, actually, that, um, that when it comes to A-B testing, which is a phrase, actually, if you've been around e-commerce um, uh, for a while, you would have come across. And it's just literally, like you say, creating two versions of, say, the same web page and then sending people, some of the people to page A, some of the people to page B. And seeing which one converts better, or um, showing everybody the same page and only the headline and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Or the same ads, but you, you tweak certain things. Um, it's interesting that you, you mentioned about how actually that's not as straightforward. That that actually requires a little bit of thought in terms of knowing what to test uh, with the AB testing. So how would you how would you figure that out? How would you know what to test?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to pull from your user experience research tool belt, like I like to say. So you've got to like the Batman us- utility belt, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a very practical belt though, in our case. <laughs> but you've got to, you know, A B testing is kind of the final tool that you use. It's the decision of do we do this action or this change or not? And then you learn from it to see if they responded to that change. But to decide the change itself usability testing is a super powerful tool that a lot of people in e-comm don't know about or aren't using as much as they should. So a usability test is taking five participants typically through a customer journey on your site, and you ask them to do certain tasks and you get their thoughts as they go through it. Importantly, you're not asking them what they would change. Mm -hmm. You're asking them, what do you expect will happen? What do you think about what's happening here? What do you expect will happen on the next page? Mm And the collection of that feedback, if you analyze it the right way, will surface your big problems that you've got to focus on. So usability testing is really good at capturing about 80% of the problems that you have and helping you focus and prioritize on solving those ones instead of just guessing as to what things people might respond to.
1: I feel like, uh, AJ, this rabbit hole is getting deeper and deeper. Uh, so you talk about, which is great, usability testing. Now, you mentioned five participants. I guess in my head, I'm thinking, is that all? Do you know what I mean? I, do I not need 500 participants? I mean, is there is there a reason why you say five? Is that the magic number? It seems like a small number to me.
2: It is just the right number. So the more people you add to a usability study, sure, you're going to collect more and more problems. But the goal of a usability study isn't to know all of your problems. The goal of a usability study is to know your biggest problems. And so there's been a lot of academic research in this field that points to the magic number being somewhere between four to five people with an assumption that all those people have something in common. So the way we think about it in e-commerce is that they represent one of your user personas. So perhaps it's the mobile visitor who's never seen your site before and is looking to purchase the type of thing you're buying or you're offering. And so you have five people with similar backgrounds on the same device, uh, looking with the same goals in mind, and then you can really capture about 80% of the problems that exist.
1: Okay. So would you do it so, um, and forgive me for being nitpicky here, I'm just trying to think of... I mean, there's a million questions in my head, so I'm just gonna ask at least some of them. Um, if you've got like that idea of you're gonna take a customer persona who is looking on at your website on their mobile um and they're buying something for the first time, that's quite a specific set of circumstances. Do you then take five people who are um on a desktop who are persona number two and they're not necessarily interested in buying, they're more interested in finding out about something. Do you know what I mean? They're maybe starting the journey mm-hmm. in a different way. Uh, would you have five would that be a separate usability test
2: yeah absolutely so anytime you have different a different learning goal you'd want to run a different usability study or a different user group would be a different usability study and so the question for where to start with those because you don't have time and budget to do usability studies every day with all the different possible combinations of desires and needs is you focus on where you believe the biggest pain points are Mm -hmm. So kind of stepping back to our tool belt, we're going to take out our analytics tool. Okay, we see big drop-off on mobile at this one, like maybe from the PDP add to cart to checkout. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure we construct a study that really examines why we're getting higher drop-off there and focus on that user group first. So it's really the combination of signals. Mm -hmm. We're looking for signals from the data that says, hey, there may be an opportunity to improve here. Signal from a usability study that says, here's why people are struggling. And then that ultimate signal from an A B test that says, yes, you found a solution that's going to help address that problem and change that number you found in analytics.
1: Wow. Okay. So, I mean, that's, I like that because it's data driven by your analytics. So you're using the data to analyze where your big issues are, where your big problems are. And then you're getting people that fit that criteria. Are you watching how they use it? Are you recording it? Are you screen grabbing it? Are they in a controlled environment? How, What does that look like?
2: Yeah, there's a variety of fidelities available in the research um, options around usability testing. So my background, I was trained in a usability lab where I sat next to a participant who was holding the device underneath the recorder so that the people behind the scenes, that kind of one-way mirror, could see exactly what we were doing. That person was taking notes. I was running the script, and it was very Mm high-fidelity research. Uh, Well, as we've matured, as an industry and had to you know, be open to maybe compromises or to reaching customers where they are, more tools have come out. So there are things like moderated versus unmoderated, which means I can ask follow-up questions if I'm moderating, but I also become an influencing factor in the study. Mm-hmm. So then unmoderated gives you a standard script, you give them all the same questions and if your script's really good, then they can go through it all on their own. And then you have varying levels of fidelity based on where you find your participants, what kind of screener questions you use. Um, I could just dig and dig into this whole about usability studies because there's a reason reason that um, it takes so so much skill to be really good at usability Mm -hmm. studies. Anybody could plug in a usability study on usertesting.com and probably take away a few valuable things. But if you really want to get it right with the right question, the right participants, the right recruitment study, you've got to work with someone who actually has experience in that mm. instead of somebody who's just kind of spread thin mm. across a lot of different expertise.
1: Which I is true of most things, I think. Uh if you want to do something well, get an expert or someone who's done it at least a few times to come help you. Um uh, or be willing to learn yourself, I think is, you know, and, and be prepared to make those mistakes, right? And I um I I can see now why you talked about how to do conversion rate optimization. Well, unlike everybody else, it wasn't one of my favorite phrases from when we talked last time. Just simply because I don't know many people who do the usability studies. I think most people go straight to the AB testing and they go, right, I'm, I want to switch out this image or I want to change this headline. Or do you know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's based on what they think and it's, it, in effect, it's guess A and guess B, right? And so mm. um, at least that's how I see it. Is, is that how you see most conversion rate optimization? Or
2: I think it's very idea driven. Mm. So I think a lot of times it's based on ideas that you see a competitor doing or ideas that you just kind of think of as maybe an interesting thing to try out. And those have their own place because creativity is a big part of this as well, is finding the right solution and willing to be a little bit innovative in your testing to Mm. see if you can find something that's kind of that golden nugget. But if you want to have a consistent program where you're consistently learning and consistently getting wins, and if you want to be able to learn from losses, which is its own kind of conversation, uh, because a lot of times it's easy to say, oh, it lost, let's move on to the next thing. Mm. So if you want to have a repeatable experimentation culture, you have to have it be more systematic. If you want to look for some quick improvements right now, absolutely go test some ideas. I don't want to discourage anyone from doing that, but there's different levels of maturity. And kind of in between those two is the ability to prioritize and choose the right scoring criteria for the ideas so that the best ideas are the ones that you focus on. So it's the inputs, Understanding the problems, prioritization, figuring out which of those solutions potentially map to a problem, map to something that's highly visible, and then ultimately having the right idea that Mm. tackles all the things that you've just learned.
1: Have you? um, I I, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, AJ, but have you got an example, maybe, of someone you've seen do this well that can maybe help us understand the 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 system, the process that you that you've talked about? Almost like not a case study, but do you know what I mean—a sort of an example. Um, that you can think of?
2: Yeah, I would say we, uh, we have a client that we've been working with uh, and last summer we were doing some user research with them. And in this case, they have really difficult to recruit visitors. Their target audience is really specific. They're expensive to get in communication with because they're a specific type of professional. And so we did research where as a proxy, we talked to their sales team. And so as subject matter experts, we asked them to walk us through how they talk to that customer or that prospect, what things that person cares about, what they need. And with all that input, we ended up creating a new landing page and testing against an old landing page. And we saw a lift of over 100% to conversion. And... All we did was connect the dots. We mm-hmm. connect the dots from what their sales team already knew about the customer. We translated that into a UX that would convey what the sales team was conveying and reinforcing that message. And of course, it was successful. So well, just one of many examples of if you can connect all the dots in the right way, you're going to get to improve success for your company. And is that, I mean, I, I the, the the thing that's ringing loudly in my
1: ears is the 100% increase um, is that typical or is that untypical?
2: Untypical. <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely untypical. Nobody the- listening to this should expect to get a doubling of their conversion just based on one test. Uh, it was absolutely a home run, grand, mm. grand slam, whatever analogy you want to use on that, because it so clearly connected the dots and provided something that was missing from the current experience. Most A-B testing is going to be incremental. It's going to be 5% here, 3% here, 20% here. And the, the um, collection of those increases will result in a much higher ROI or revenue for the company. Uh, but because we are so unpredictable as humans, we can't really forecast very accurately what the impact will be of a test. And so that's why we reinforce our scoring with all this other input. Because if we have lots of signal that it's going to work, we feel more confident that it's going to have a bigger lift. And then by actually A-B testing and validating it, we can be sure that it had an impact that we expected.
1: So it's a mixture then. Um, conversion rate optimization is a mixture then of both art and science, isn't it? It's not all data-driven. Some of it is using your creative intuition, I suppose. Um, but it's not all just creative intuition. There is some data and then it's validated by data at the end. Is Am I hearing that right?
2: Yeah, it's just this kind of cycle of... Uh, Brainstorming what the problem can be, confirming that that's the problem, brainstorming the solution, confirming that's the solution. So it's a lot of creative process. And I think what keeps me really energized about doing this work is there's a lot of surprises along the way. Mm -hmm. And those surprises, if you can dig into them, are going to unveil even more opportunity. And so being able to take that time to be really thoughtful and follow up on things that don't go as expected is what kind of keeps me ticking, figuring out how do we keep solving what customers need.
1: What do you mean when you say there are surprises along the way? Because it sounds like there's a bit of a story behind that single word. So I'm, I'm curious what you understand by that.
2: Yeah, you know, I think I think there's kind of an assumption and I, I see this with a lot of um, what what often happens is someone will come to us in the sales process and they'll say, oh, we got a list of fixes to make on our site from this other company. And they call them like conversion rate improvements. Um, and I can look at the list and I can say, well, we've run that test. It lost. We've run that test and it's lost. We've run that test and it's lost. And so what's often happening in the industry is people are saying, these are heuristics. These are best practices. You should do them. But they're not suggesting to do them as an A-B test. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's an important distinction that customers are going to behave differently on different sites. Mm-hmm. So an example is for e free shipping banner It's super popular. You see it on every site because customers forget the shipping policy and they need to see it constantly. Mm -hmm. So a little skinny pencil banner at the top of the page helps enforce that message that, hey, we've got free shipping. We've got free returns. Like you can buy from us. I feel more confident. Well, we've run that test with customers and seen it not work.
1: That's really interesting.
2: Maybe eight out of 10 times it works, Mm -hmm. but in the the one or two times it doesn't work, it should work. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand why it didn't work. And so sometimes it's the specific threshold of the, the free shipping. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's the pricing and the products and how it interacts with that. Sometimes it's if you click through and the policy isn't clear on the other side or it kind of takes you in a different journey. So there could be a thousand things that could go wrong on your site. And if, you don't, if you're not very intentional in figuring out why they don't work or the fact that they don't work, uh, you, miss, you have a missed opportunity and you lose out on revenue.
1: I now understand what you mean by the word surprise. Cause I was actually surprised then with the whole free shipping. So you've actually seen websites not benefit by putting the free shipping banner on there. I e, it's is it the opposite of benefit? Actually they've lost sales as a result of putting that banner on there. Yes.
2: <laughs> well. Wow. Well, you very it rare. it's very rare, but we still test it because we see that sometimes it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work, it points to a huge problem as yeah. opposed to some small thing about the message not being present.
1: Yeah, yeah. there's got to be a reason because you would expect it. No, I get that. Um, mm-hmm. So this is this is quite interesting because you're right. Most of the gurus out there, uh, probably me included, not that I necessarily would call myself a guru, but do you know what I mean? It's uh would advocate if you do free shipping to promote that on the on the front page and I, I, I'm 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 quite I can see like I say why you're surprised. So just because it's best practice doesn't mean it's best practice for you and we have to test that and 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 realize actually is that working? Yes or no. Um how would you I, I get what you're saying in terms of, I, I have a website over here, right? And I'm running this website, turn over a couple of million. We've got customers, you know, thousands of customers. We've got a lot of data from all over the world and we can, we can see the analytics. So I I, I can get that. I can go, well, let's start here and let's try that. And I have a budget and we go, mm-hmm. what about um, the guy over on this side, maybe who is three months into his e-commerce business, you know, turning over a couple of grand Um is doing everything himself you know managing the website or herself they're managing the website they're picking and packing the boxes do you mean they're they're, how where do they start with cro because obviously it's important Mm -hmm. for both right
2: it is and i I think there's two solutions for the early stage e-commerce businesses um one is to bring in an expert to do an audit and so saying, hey, this is, this is the information that's hard to find. Here are some things that we've seen work in other testing that we should consider and kind of put in place. Because if eight out of 10 times free shipping works, it's probably worth putting it on there mm-hmm. rather than not on there and testing into it when you have more traffic, mm-hmm. for example. Um, the other thing that's really powerful is to come back to that deep hole about usability studies. You can do usability studies very inexpensively. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't have the fidelity you'll have if you need a very specific user group but you can still get feedback from customers. And so the thing that when I talk to a new store owner, I talk to them about is have you talked to your customers and have you seen them use your site? Mm -hmm. Because most of the time people think that they're seeing their customers using the site because they do click recordings and they can kind of see mouse movement, Mm -hmm. but it's even more powerful to sit someone down in a cafe And say, can you walk through the site, pick out a product, and go through purchase? Um, You don't have to buy it today. I'll just want to see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And you're going to learn things every single time you do that. And it will maybe be less perfect of information than like a full usability study with a great recruit, but it will be a signal that you can act on. So for just getting started, removing yourself as a variable and getting inputs from other people is the best place you can do that's fascinating that is fa- so you
1: would actually advocate going to a coffee shop with someone uh, and why would you not if it's a decent coffee shop but you would actually <laughs> go and sit down in person with this customer and it's not just about using i mean software like hot jaw for example which monitors clicks and the the mouse movements um but you would actually say no no i'm just going to go to a coffee shop i'm going to sit down with a customer buy my coffee and i'm going to see what see what happens and this person is sort of tentatively in my target uh, persona here. Do you know what I mean? There's some correlation with what's going on. Um, and that actually, that yields good results. I mean, that's where, I mean, because for a, for a small business owner, I mean, a coffee shop sounds ideal. You know, you can sit and work in a coffee shop, I suppose, if you're doing an internet business and just have one or two customers come in that day. Um, sounds remarkably easy when I say it like that. But I, 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 have you run into problems doing this?
2: I think that the, well, COVID's one. So if you can't, if you can't meet in person, <laughs> do true. it over yeah, Zoom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you just kind of play out that it could be a virtual coffee as well. But if we're, let's just play out the full, like in-person scenario. Um, you're often influencing your results. So it's like the moderator effect mm-hmm. or the moderator bias. And so it's even more so when you are the sto- store owner asking somebody for feedback about your store. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to try to minimize the impact of yourself in the results. And you also wanna make sure you're not just recruiting your friends or family because they're gonna be a lot of yeses. This is great, I understand it. This is what a pretty picture. Uh, You wanna to to work with someone who's gonna give you an honest and open feedback about the experience. And so from the user experience research world, you you could set up a script in the script. And if you go to usability.gov, Uh, The US government has templates you can just start using today. And it will set it up with things like, the purpose of this is for us to learn about the software. We are testing the software. We're not testing you. Mm -hmm. We want your open and honest feedback about how this experience is. And then you construct the scenarios and tasks to be very factual. You'd like to now find a gift for your friend. How would you go about doing that? And you don't You don't dig in. You don't show a lot of emotion. Um, One of my favorite things to kind of think about, because I think a lot of people don't realize they do this, is as humans, we're really, when we're interested in something someone's saying, we lean in, we take notes, we do all kinds of things that signal to that person that I love what we're talking about. And so as a moderator, you want to try to remove and reduce that impact. You don't want the person sitting next to you to know that you're interested in what they're saying more than the thing they said before. Okay, that's so interesting. Yeah, my, my go-to, yeah, you want the blank slate, but the other thing that's really great just for people who aren't as experienced with research is if you bring your own separate computer and you just like take notes the whole entire time, then they don't know that you jotted something down. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I just press the letter A over and over and over <laughs> until I find something to actually type up. <laughs>
1: that's brilliant. With your deadpan face, have you got a good poker face? Is that, is
2: I've got that... a great poker face. Yeah, I can imagine. Know. Yeah, brilliant.
1: Wow, well, there you go. Now, there's another phrase that you mentioned um, that I want to get into in our pre-call, and that's a culture of mistakes, uh, which was a phrase we used a couple of times. But before we get into that in part two, let's just take a moment to thank this week's show sponsors. Music.
3: Did you know that nutrition is one of the keys to maintaining the energy you need to drive your business forward? Vegetology creates incredible unique supplements in an eco-friendly, ethical and sustainable way that feed your body with the precise nutrients it needs. We're not just making you healthier, we're helping to protect our planet too. Our products are vegan friendly and approved by the Vegan and Vegetarian Society. Plus they're gluten free so they fit perfectly into any lifestyle. They also contain no artificial colours or flavours, making them good for your taste buds too. You can feel good about your food choices with our healthy, natural supplements. We have something for everyone, whether you want to boost your immune system or just get more energy every day. And we're always working on new ingredients so that we can provide even better products in the future. So what are you waiting for? Get started now by heading over to Vegetology.com.
0: Hey there, are you a business owner? Here at Orion Digital, we know firsthand that running an e-commerce business can be really hard work. As the online space gets more competitive, it is becoming even more challenging to stay ahead of the curve. We totally get it. So we want to help you succeed by offering a wide range of services, from fulfillment, marketing, customer service, and even coaching and consulting, just so that you can do what matters most. Save yourself the time and the money and let us handle the day-to-day tasks. This way, you can run your business without having to worry about the boring stuff. So what do you say? Are we a good fit for each other? Come check us out at oriondigital.com and let us know what you think.
1: Okay, I am back with AJ. Uh, and a big shout out to our show sponsors. Thanks to our show sponsors, it enables us to do what we do. So go check them out. Use these guys; they're good guys. But anyway, AJ, let's crack on with this. The culture of mistakes was an in, a, another interesting phrase that sort of popped out uh, in our conversation. That I thought, oh, this is a really interesting phrase. What do you mean by a culture of mistakes?
2: I think that with the culture of mistakes, it's the ability to call things an experiment and know that things can lose and remove the personal kind of effects of having a loss so i'll flip the flip the coin a little bit and say if you were just a culture about wins you would remove some transparency Mm because when things don't go right you wouldn't tell people about it and you remove the ability to learn when things don't go as expected and so on the flip side uh, culture from losing or from experimentation gives you an opportunity to say, "Okay, let's take time to examine what happened." And so this, you know, this is something that I've learned from being in the product development, like software space, mm-hmm. but it applies for my entire team now. Is that whenever something uh, is a new thing or a new initiative we're doing, we define it as an experiment. We say, "Here's the problem we're going to solve with this. Here's our proposed solution." And we evaluate it for a certain amount of time with measurables Mm -hmm. as much as we can that are going to say yes this worked yes it didn't and along that path of measurement we understand is it working or not and then at the end of the day it's the ability to say it lost and the ability to shut something down that really enables your team to like move forward and propel the business so similarly with experimentation and experiment a culture of learning from losing ask you to double click into things if they're a loss. So we'll take that. um, I'll give you another example from the e-comm world. Mm -hmm. We've run a lot of testing to increase visibility of navigation. Generally, you want people to find the navigation so (laughs) that they can find the products that they're looking for. Uh, We've had a series of times when we've successfully done that. We've gotten a lot more people to interact with the navigation, but then they purchase less. And they purchase less, like all the steps along the funnel, they go to fewer product pages, they add to cart less, like the funnel just is showing drop off that it was a bad choice to send them to the nav. So a culture of winning would say, great, now we're gonna uh, just remove the navigation altogether. Customers don't need the navigation. (laughs) Let's test that next. Um, Sure, maybe that's a hypothesis. Mm. But even more powerful is to say, okay, well, we got people to do this action. Let's examine that more closely. And so taking that loss and examining it is where the power lays lies. That's where the power lies. Because if you look at the navigation and you start seeing, oh, possibly people were using the nav more, but it was more confusing. Mm -hmm. So let's do some research to understand where are they getting stuck in the, the hierarchy of our navigation. So it kind of comes back to what we were talking about in the first part of the show, which is just not being afraid to declare that something lost Mm -hmm. and creating a plan around that loss. So you have like a learning plan or a development plan for the client or for the team. I think,
1: um, and the reason why I loved this, uh, concept is because I think actually we do live in a society and a culture, which is a, a culture of wins. And you, you know, um, it's, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's, uh, who's nothing to do with digital he's a he's a doctor he's a very clever man um he is very high up in the field of breast cancer Uh, and so i mean super clever compared to me right um and it was fascinating talking to him because he was talking about how the thing that he's noticed in however many years he's been in medicine is this one of the things that has evolved is this culture of perfection um and so everybody is striving all the time to be perfect and if we're not perfect then something is wrong do you know what I mean and it's um mm-hmm. it's it's a really fascinating way in which we've sort of evolved to think uh so this is not right this is not perfect therefore it is wrong and uh his wife was telling me he said you'll be amazed how many people come in and get diagnosed with cancer and will go this is what have i done to create cancer mm-hmm. right um, and their whole thing is I don't know if you've done anything, do you know what I mean? But it's that whole, uh, something is wrong, therefore it's imperfect. Whereas um, if you can, they talked about how if you can change the way that you think um, about this idea of perfection, you are usually much better at dealing with something like cancer, which I just thought was a phenomenal conversation, right? And I hope I'm not doing the conversation an injustice. And what you've done here is you've taken that same principle, that same uh, policy, which says, actually, it's okay to get things wrong. It's okay to make mistakes. In fact, it's probably a good thing uh, if we make mistakes because we can learn from them. Um, is Am I reflecting back correctly what you what you just said?
2: Yeah, and I think that the one thing I'd layer into that is that when we make mistakes because we were absent-minded or malicious or had bad intent, those are not acceptable mistakes. Those are things we should point a finger at and address very quickly yeah. but also don't want to support that. But on the flip side, if we hold back our ability to take risk because we want to be perfect, then we're already failed. Like we're failing at the thing that we just decided not to try. Yeah. And so something that I hold as a personal value is when I see something I'm afraid of or I see something that is a bit of a risk to me, if it doesn't fall in that first bucket of being like immoral or, you know, it's going to kill me today. Like if it's something that I can safely do, Mm -hmm. but I'm sensing some sort of reaction holding me back because I maybe want to be perfect, perfect, or maybe I'm going to embarrass myself by doing it. uh, I usually like take a closer look at that and say, okay, well now I'm going to have to do it because (laughs) I hesitated.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I think it's a really interesting life philosophy if I'm honest with you. Um, this idea of, you know what? Um, I remember. I don't know. Are you, I'm. I think a little bit older than you by by, by a substantial margin. Um, there was. I uh, think we
2: we established uh, in the pre-show
1: you were 21. So
2: we're uh, good. 27. Yeah, yeah. 27. <laughs> 27 yeah, that's
1: yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> you just get 27 and stay there. That's it. There was a movie which you may or may not have heard of, and I don't want to make any assumptions. Called *The Empire Strikes Back*, which is part of the Star Wars uh, range of movies. And when I was a kid, this this movie was really interesting to me because I think Star Wars had a big impact uh, on a lot of people my age, to the point where in the UK uh, there was a petition drawn up to set the Jedi Knight up uh, a, a, as a, an official religion here in the UK, because if you got enough signatures. You could, in theory, get something through uh, Parliament, and the government looked at that and went, "No, we're just not going to." I mean, it was it was, <laughs> it was hysterical, but that's just such such as the impact of Star Wars, and there's a scene in this movie where Yoda and Luke Skywalker are in a swamp, uh, and Luke is trying to use the Force to raise this X-wing fighter, and he doesn't succeed. And what happens is he says to Yoda, I'll try. And Yoda says, No, do or do not. There is no try. And I thought it was a really interesting um phrase when I watched it back with my kids, watching it with them. I thought that's interesting how that ideology, I think, has impacted a lot of my generation growing up. No, 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 we we do or we do not. There is no try. It's mm-hmm. it's binary, it's on or it's off. There's no analogue. Do you know what I mean? It's that whole kind of mm-hmm. thinking. And actually, for the whole purpose behind experimenting is trying it's having a go it's just i don't know if this is going to work i'm hopeful it will i'm not stupid to go i'm going to try something that i know is going to fail um but i i'm just going to have a go and see what works right and i i think it's a really interesting life philosophy all of that said back to e-commerce how do you take that? Um, ideology, that sort of um, culture of mistakes, how how does that impact CRO? How does that make me um, uh, better selling? Uh, that's a wrong phrase. How does that help me sell better online is probably the right phrase.
2: Yeah, I think if you look at customer ex- expectations are changing over time, their experiences intersecting with other parts of their lives or other stores are changing over time and so if you are not experimenting if you're not trying new things you will be stale mm. you will become flat and so if you want to be growing and if you want to stay up on kind of the not just the latest and greatest but the things that actually make it easier for customers then you've got to be experimenting because it's not static it's not one and done it's not check I did CRO CRO is the decision to iteratively approach how your customers experience your site mm. And so if you're not taking multiple swings at the bat, if you're not stepping up and trying new things consistently with an intent to learn about your customer so you can apply it elsewhere, like that you just will not succeed as a business in the long run. Mm.
1: That's really good. I'm I'm thinking about the guy um, or guy, I just default to guys because that's me, right? But it's, (laughs) I'm thinking about the person who um, is launching or relaunching their website right so you've um they've 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 got their business it's growing and they've gone like right i need to do i need to update my website which happens to everybody all the time i need to update it
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um in this in this model then this cro this culture of mistakes this testing this innovation this trying new stuff um i'm going cool i've got my new website do i do i just launch it or do i do some of the, the, the things that you're talking about beforehand do i get people to come and use it and try it um and the reason i'm asking this question if i'm honest with you is because i would say 95 percent of the people i know in this space just go i've got a new site let's launch it let's see what happens um without any testing do you know what I mean and I, i'm i'm curious to know your thoughts on that
2: Well, launching a brand new site is a great way to generate business for my company (laughs) because people launch a site without having done any of that homework and things go wrong. Mm. And without a doubt, something does, whether it's overall conversion and revenue is down or it could be certain parts of the funnel have more friction that weren't there in the last experience. If you think about it, you had a site where you had lots of data going through it. You were able to learn and adjust and it improved and smoothed out over time. And instead of you're comparing like the smooth process or the smoothed out process against like this, like rocky, jagged mountain that you've just put in place. And so you just don't know where those pitfalls are without getting some data on it. So, of course, I'd be an advocate of testing that new experience. I think that, you know, the way I like to think about it is that you know, if you asked me five years ago, I would say you should test into every single change and you should, instead of rolling out a big site, you should be testing every single thing to get to that end state. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my thinking on that's kind of come a little bit more centered since then mm-hmm. because it is important to have big brand changes or to address things that are happening outside of the website directly into the site. So, a kind of a middle ground, like reasonable place to land is to say, okay, we have a new homepage design. It's part of this bigger redesign effort but instead of changing all the variables at once and kind of crossing our fingers and hoping it works we could instead say let's build this new home page and test it against the old one just to make sure the net effect of the changes is neutral to positive because if it's not then we don't want to roll it out mm. and so oftentimes when our clients are looking to do redesigns we say look let's do it this way we'll do page by page we'll test out the new templates Possibly we don't do it on all your traffic, so we can kind of test on a smaller group, get a sense of how they respond, make sure nothing is totally broken in the new switch. And then you can roll out, you know, your five to eight template pages once you've tested each of those. Mm. So it becomes much more feasible to make that change over three to six months with testing, as opposed to doing it all at once with a lot of risk or backing into it over a few years.
1: Mm. That's really interesting. And so you... Do you It sounds to me like you're going to need more than five people, though, for this kind of, uh, or maybe it still is five. Am I just going to go and get five of my customers and go, right, this is the uh, current homepage, this is the new homepage, tell me what you think. Uh, I Mm. I appreciate it's more complicated than that, do you know what I mean? But is it a case of uh, uh, doing that with the homepage, then doing it with the new product page layout, just going and getting some great customers and just sort of seeing what they say?
2: Yeah. Let me clarify. When I was talking about page by page, I would do an A-B test on it. Mm-hmm. So for brand new big changes, I would absolutely want the real world data on the experience. So I would split test a new homepage versus an old one. The place for usability, usability testing would be a, a variation on usability testing is called prototype testing. Mm-hmm. So if you had an interactive um, either design or build out site experience, then you could have you know five customers from each of those important personas go through the new design site, identify pain points. The time for that is usually before you've developed it. Mm-hmm. You want it to be in the early phases, so it's not expensive to address that feedback. So you can iterate on the design, put it in front of more customers, do it again, and then do that A-B testing once you've built it all out. Um, I think the reason I went straight for A-B testing is so often companies kind of get over their skis with a new design. They've gotten a big pitch from a great design agency. They're really excited about the new look and feel of their site and all the promise that is made around improvements to conversion. And so in order to de-risk, we've already made this commitment. We've already decided to invest in a redesign. Then you want to break it down into those page or template-based A-B tests.
1: And so so by A-B testing, you're... What you're meaning is you're going to send some of your traffic to that page, a portion of the traffic to that page, and a portion of traffic to the other page. And you're going to monitor the results sort of side by side and see which one converts better. I've seen it done whereby you have um where people have launched websites and it will say something like, Hey, welcome to our new look and feel website. And you know, the homepage sort of talks about some of the changes, and they're all very excited about it. And it's like, but if you still prefer our old. Website, you can click here. Um, I'm I've not seen that as much these days, actually. Is but I'm I'm curious. Have you ever tried that as an idea? Does that work?
2: Yeah, uh, we actually had a customer do this maybe two years ago, where they introduced like a redirect to the new site with a click back to the old one, just like you're describing. Um, in this, in that case, they had. Other issues with usability on the site, so they ended up the new site didn't work, Mm -hmm. but we didn't see a lot of clicks back. And the reason is it's not a really normal journey to Mm be, oh, I'm frustrated. Let me go figure out an alternative way to avoid this frustration. Most people are going to close their browser Mm -hmm. or they're going to go to another website. And so unless it's very, very prominent, probably most people aren't going to benefit from having the ability to switch back. It can be a way to de-risk, it can be a way to get a signal as to whether prefer, people prefer the old site or are confused, but there are better, stronger signals than that click back because of all the other consequences that can happen. I guess if I think
1: about, you know, before you gave some examples about uh, that one example of a client that got a 100% return on, uh, return, you know, change, and I thought, it was marvelous, a bloody marvelous, as we'd say here in the UK. Um, what about this sort of culture of mistakes, this experimentation? Have you got any sort of stories um, that you can share around that?
2: Yeah, I think one of, the, one of my personal favorite testing themes is removing stuff. So I'd love to share an example of a test we ran where we, we came to a site, they were producing very highly specialized clothing, athletic wear for women. And for this company, you know, they felt like they had to really explain what was different about their product, they were new to the market, so they felt like there was this big component of education that they needed to have. And so uh, we, we didn't necessarily agree or disagree with that assumption, but what, how it played out on their site was there were big blocks of text throughout the site. And in particular, one place where it felt, um, well, at least the, the analytics data pointed to there being a, a bigger drop-off on that page than we expected, but on a category listing page the The first whole scroll, so before you scroll the page, everything above the fold was just text mm-hmm. and the purpose of the page was a listing page of all the leggings and so if you go to a page where you're looking to be able to visually compare different styles and colors and uh, designs and you get to a page and you're hit with a block of text, that might be uh, you know discouraging. Mm-hmm. However, there is an assumption that they do need education. So what should that look like? How should we provide that? And is it important at this stage? So uh, similar to what we were just talking about, about collecting a signal through some sort of clicker action, yeah. we simply collapsed the information and gave a like read more option and saw, I think, somewhere around like a 30% lift to orders as a result of collapsing the information. It was still there. And the second thing we learned was that people didn't click to open it. So they weren't necessarily looking for more information about the brand. And so we see this time and again where businesses feel as though they need to tell the visitor about them um, or they need to like reiterate the message. And for certain messages, absolutely, we should be doing it. Free shipping, value props, like those things that you've got to your customer has questions about along the journey but for other things we've got to kind of drop. We've got to do this like slow drip of information as opposed to kind of giving them a wall of information every time. So a theme I would have like your listeners take a look at for their own site is if you look at the site and you look at certain pages, can you see a product on the page without scrolling? Mm-hmm. And if you can't, you're probably not giving a good handhold to help them move through the pages.
1: That's really intriguing how um just one paragraph of text had a 30% change on orders. Do you know what I mean? And that it's quite extraordinary that something that seemingly insignificant had that big of an impact. Um at least it is in, in my head. Do you know what I mean? And you you I guess if you're sat there and you're you're thinking about oh, I want to get more sales on my website, I'd the, there's a checklist in your head, right, more Facebook ads. Do you know what I mean? This, that, the other. Nobody sits there and goes, oh, there's a bit too much text in the first fold of my screen. I might want to reduce the number of I, I do that though.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there is one person doing yeah, it. Yeah, that, that is you.
1: But I, I I appreciate that actually it's important, right? And, mm-hmm. and But people don't think about this sort of thing because um they'll have bought a template of shopify or do you know what i mean a designer where oh, i've no we need, some, we need some text here is what we need yes let's put that there and i think it's um if you're running a business that has been put together by other people like a web design agency it's hard to then go back and question those because in your head they're the experts um whereas what you're doing is you're actually saying well let's let's not assume that shall we and let's uh, let's work this through would that that block of text would that be something that would have come out of the usability testing had you have done it on that side? i don't know if you did but had you have done it would is that where that would have come out of other than your mm-hmm. own propensity to go there's too much text there um would i have found out about that that way
2: yeah that's a good question i'd say sometimes the design choices like that of like is it the right information or not you're not going to get the participant in most cases to say, "What is this big block of text doing here?" I wish this weren't here. You know, most people aren't going to reflect on your site design in that level of detail. Mm-hmm. They instead may signal in the study, um, "Oh, I can't find the products," or "Oh, I found the products" once they've scrolled. And so it's the kind of the it's that art of interpreting the response mm-hmm. of what caused them to have that moment of. Oh, here it is. Or, Oh, I didn't see this because then you can extrapolate. Okay. The problem is they couldn't find the products right away how do I know what caused that problem? And that's where you're getting into ideation of, okay, it's probably this block of text that's, in this case, it was pretty obvious because that's the one thing taking up the screen. Mm. Um, But in other cases, it can be hard to pinpoint and that you can't get it on the first test. Mm. And so that's why we like to think about like a test theme where you have a problem and you have a test theme of people can't see products on this page. And you may have five, six, 10 tests that get you closer and closer to people being able to see products and therefore ultimately be able to convert. That's fascinating.
1: Fascinating. So the, <clears throat> I guess the thing that I'm picking up here, um, AJ, is actually uh, there's a culture of mistakes. There's a culture of CRO, it seems like that you need to have this um, culture of optimization that actually this is not a one-time gig. This is not a one-time event. Um, and from what I'm hearing you say, this is this is uh, a way of life for anybody running an e-commerce business. That actually, optimization needs to be something you consistently do on your website, week in, week out. Uh, you should be continually testing things. Am I am I picking that up right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it comes down to if you're spending money to get traffic to your site. Let's say you're running paid ads, you're investing in SEO, you have all these different inputs to get people to your site. If you want to multiply the impact of all those efforts, the best way and maybe the only way to do that is conversion rate Mm -hmm. optimization. So if all this traffic comes in and we're able to increase their conversion rates up, suddenly there's a multiplier in all that spend. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's a culture in a sense that you will always be learning. There's always improvements. Your customers' expectations and behaviors will always change. But on the flip side, like businesses are also releasing new lines of products or potentially making design choices or marketing choices that impact how the site functions. And if you're not iterating, if you're not taking a look consistently at what the impact of those things are, then you're missing out on that as well. So it's it could be one and done if the only thing you had on your site was like a single button and one traffic source that was always the same five people coming to the site to click the one button. But because there's so many variables shifting, you have to be able to isolate individual variables of design and customer flow on the site in order to make sure that's correct for all those shifting variables.
1: How long, um, I guess when I, I'm hearing myself ask this question and I'm thinking, how long's a piece of string is probably the answer, but how long do you run a test for? Do you know what I mean hmm. if I'm, um, is this something that I do and I get the results tomorrow? Is this something that I do for three months?
2: I mean, what sort of timeframes are we talking about? Um, the consulting answer, of course, is it depends, but the, we have three heuristics <laughs> to decide. How a piece decide. of string, yeah, yeah, that's the right answer. <laughs> but we do have three, ver- three kind of um, things we're looking for to determine, okay, we have enough signal on mm-hmm. this particular change. So we want to have two weeks of data at a minimum. And the reason is because somebody shopping on a Monday morning has different intent or different needs than somebody, you know, out shopping on their phone on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. So you get two life cycles of customer behavior, Monday through Sunday, two times. Doesn't have to be those days, but just like Mm -hmm. a full two weeks. You want to hit a confidence threshold. Most of our clients are doing 95% confidence if you have a business that's really risk adverse, you can up that to 99, 99.999. What do you mean when you say confidence threshold? Sorry. Yeah, it's the ability to know that this number is definitely different than this number by this much. Okay. And so it's basically a statistical modeling of if we have enough data and these two things are different enough from each other. You know, at n- 95% confidence, 19 out of 20 times, we have accurately assessed the situation mm. and we do know it's better. Uh, One out of 20 times, it could just be random noise, mm. just random data. Um, and then the, um, the third thing that we look at is the amount of traffic, because for some businesses, they are having fluctuations in traffic. Mm. And so we what we do is we set a threshold of how much traffic we need for the test so if we hit the traffic that we need, it's been two weeks and we're over 95% confidence, then we'll declare the test to be a winner or a loser, and then do a deeper analysis to understand what to do next with that decision.
1: So the, I mean, I'm I'm thinking here for the sites that we've had in the in the past and the sites that we've currently got e-commerce sites now. One of the things that I can tell you makes a big difference is when payday is, and people usually in the UK get paid at the end of the month. Um, and so you always see a spike in sales towards the end of the month. And the teen dates are always your lowest sales dates. So, you know, you get this sort of cycle. Um, would I extend my testing period then from, say, two weeks to four weeks to cover at least one of the upturns and one of the downturns?
2: Yeah, possibly. And I think that's why we use these three as um, kind of guiding principles, because for any individual business, there might be some seasonality considerations or within the month considerations. So, for example, one of the things that comes up is if you're testing in November and December you have a different visitor type. They're often gifting for someone else. Mm -hmm. And so their needs around the brand messaging and the names of the products and sort of the um, brand specific experience is going to be different than somebody who is there for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so what we typically will adjust, for example, would be yes, we, can, uh, we should do testing around the experience. Like, is the button in the right place? Is the image in the right place? Can they see this? Is the order of things kind of the right flow for customers? But we won't test things that are going to be audience specific for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. So it kind of becomes, again, this kind of moves more into that art of understanding the business, the art of understanding the customer groups and how they might behave differently. So you can adjust your testing strategy. Yeah. So you're testing the right things for the right amount of time at the right time of year.
1: Very good. And so I like that you've got your three areas. Think about it. They're all movable. You know, you've got to do something that makes sense for your business. Listen, uh, AJ, I I appreciate your time with us and and your insight. And you've got the the old gray matter uh, synapsis firing at a million miles an hour right now. How do, um, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to connect with you, how do they do that? What's the best way to get in touch?
2: Our website's the best option. So experimentzone.com. Uh, we've got a contact form so they can go ahead and send me a message directly through our contact form. Uh, I also love doing virtual meet and greets too. So sending me a note, reaching out on LinkedIn, AJ Davis.
1: Fantastic. And we will of course link to all of AJ's uh, stuff in the show notes, which you can get at it forward slash 91. I like when I, when you said uh, then uh, you, our website is the best option. I, I, in my head, I thought you were going to say .com. Uh, so you should just get thebestoption.com and and just register that as your domain name. It's probably gone now, isn't it, really? Uh, but it was experimentzone.com uh, was the website, not thebestoption.com. Uh, but <laughs> make sure you connect uh, with AJ and check out what she's doing. Get in touch. I'm sure she would love to talk to you. Uh, but AJ, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Thanks for coming and just, sharing your stories. And uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by the stuff that you do. So um, thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. It's a lot of fun. Well, a huge
1: big thanks to my very special guest, AJ Davis. Wasn't she fantastic? What did you think? Did you take lots of notes? Did you write them all down? Are you like me, a copious note taker? But don't actually take notes that are that legible or easy to understand. Uh, If you are, you can head over to our website, uh, ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 91. And you can get all the links, notes and transcript from today's show for free. So do head on over to our website and grab those. And of course, if this is not enough e-commerce goodness for you, and why would it be when there's lots of good stuff out there, uh, then stay tuned because next week we are speaking to Cody Whittick uh, on why giving stuff away leads to more sales with influencer seeding. Does that sound a bit cryptic or interesting? Well, to wet your whistle even further, here is an excerpt from my conversation with Cody. Back up a step further, you're targeting the right influencers. It's not just if I continue with the hat brand and I happen to fall in, it's a running hat that's athletic wear. I'm not just sending it to the stay at home mom or, you know, just anybody willy nilly, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, you're, you're targeting the right influencers based on who your brand is, who your customer is, and who the influencers that influence those customers. Yes, I am really looking forward to digging into this one, let me tell you. Uh, So make sure you like and subscribe the podcast so you can get the show delivered to your inbox or wherever you get your podcasts or whether you watch it on YouTube or wherever you get it from. It will just appear. It will just be there. That's the magic of subscription. Uh, That's the magic of hitting that notification button. So if that's you, make sure you do that. And if you did enjoy the show, then I would really appreciate it if you could give us a rating on iTunes as that just enables us to reach more people. Or wherever you get your podcast from. It just enables us to reach more people. The bigger our audience, the m- more likely we are to get sponsors. The more likely we are to get sponsors, the easier it is to bring this content to you for free. It's a win-win. It's what we call a win-win uh, in the ideal world. So please do give us a rating. It will really, really help us uh, and ultimately help you. Now, as I said at the start of the show, all of the notes, links, and transcripts to today's show are available for free online. You can get them at ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 91 So do. Check that out. That's it from me for this week. Thank you so much for listening. and uh, Make sure you come back next week to catch our conversation with Cody, It's going to be fantastic. Honestly, you're not going to want to miss it. So until then, bye for now.
0: You've been listening to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson. Join us next time for more interviews, tips, and tools for building your business online.